0: Building out the right team is one of the most important things a CEO can do. When you're hiring early team members, you're looking for people crazy enough to join your team. Like Your earliest team members, they're not going to be some accomplished Facebook exec or Google exec, unless you already have that network pre-established. But for us, we're just looking for very versatile people who are able to take that risk, Culture is important for decision-making when no one's watching over your shoulder, no one like telling you what to do. They use culture as the framework to know what's right and wrong.
1: From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Laura Behrens-Wu to Founder Real Talk. And I'm also extremely happy to have my good friend, Crystal Wong, as guest host. Laura is the founder and CEO of Shippo. Before we start, Laura, can you explain for our audience a bit about what Shippo does at a high level?
0: Yeah, of course. So Shippo is... The easiest way for you to ship a package online. And our customers are e commerce stores. Um, every single e commerce store out there needs to ship. And shipping is something that's really complicated. It's a very complex industry. And our customers want to use multiple different shipping providers at the same time. They want to make sure they always get the best rates, they optimize between providers. And that's exactly what we do for them. So we're a simple to use interface and API that connects e commerce stores to a network of different shipping providers. And then we help them compare providers, get rates, get shipping labels, tracking customs documents, everything that's shipping related. We're really the one-stop shop for shipping.
1: Laura, thanks for that overview. And thanks again for joining us. We're super excited to learn more about Shippo. Maybe start by going back to how you ended up yeah. starting the company. You know, you moved to the US shortly before you did that. Give us a little bit of a sense for your background and why you decided to do this and you know, uprooting your life and and starting a company.
0: Yeah, so starting this company was really uh, non obvious for me. It, like, I've not thought about shipping for my entire life like it's something <laughs> I stumbled across and I first came over I'm German originally I first came over to the US to uh, be an intern at a company called Lendup it was supposed to be a summer internship like 3 or 4 months and Lendup does socially responsible payday loans I joined them in the marketing department focusing on SEO I had a really great time and I decided that I did not want to go back to Germany anymore and I was Trying to figure out, even while I was already at LendUp, what other things I could be doing, and. E commerce seemed like a really interesting thing to just do on the site as a site business. Because, like, for me, all the different components to build an e commerce store were readily available. Like, you could use Shopify, Magento as a platform to build your store on. You could connect it to Stripe, to PayPal. Like, all these different building blocks were readily available, even for someone who's not an e commerce expert. And all you had to do is figure out an interesting item to sell. But um, when we started doing that, we realized shipping is very complicated. And the existing shipping solutions that we were looking at, they were provided by the shipping providers. The solutions, the user experiences were just so different compared to the technologies provided by Stripe or Shopify. And that inspired us to like figure out a way to just simplify this user experience for shipping. So at the beginning, we just wanted to provide easy-to-use technologies. Like shipping software that is easy to use for anyone, even if you're not a logistics expert. And then later on, we uh, started putting an MVP out. We realized this is something that other e-commerce stores are interested in as well. And then I I talked to my CEO at LendUp, and whenever I approached him previously with like an idea, he always said, "Well, it sounds like it's it's vitamin, not a painkiller." And he was encouraging me to like. Start pursuing something as my first venture that is a must have, that's really solving a real pain point because he said that would be so much easier to sell versus just something that's a nice to have. So, like in what I was building, the analogy is like the e commerce store is a nice to have. The shipping API or the shipping solution is a must have because every single e commerce store is facing a shipping challenge and we're solving a real pain point.
1: So it sounds like you, you came to the US, not necessarily to start Shippo, but the idea came to you shortly after after you were here. What's the experience been like starting a company in Silicon Valley as a non US citizen or, or coming from outside the US and anything as, as you liaise with founder other founders yeah. that you think is different, uh, you know, not <laughs> having grown up in the US versus being somebody yeah, from the US?
0: For sure. I think to start out with the positive. In the US, especially in the Valley, people are super open-minded with their networks. So Zasha opened up his network to me and that was phenomenal. That's how I got the first angel investors. And then every other person I met, like as like 22 years old at that time, pitching them something in the shipping space, I'm not a developer by training, and they would still introduce me to other people to bounce this idea off and eventually I was able to meet enough people to get into an accelerator. And then they opened up their network to me to raise a seed round. So compared to Germany, where everything is a lot more hierarchical, this was a very unique experience. On the other hand, I think I had to start adapting to this American way of communicating or pitching. Like in the US, people they like to say, well, we're disrupting a billion-dollar industry. And it's something I would never say in German. In German, that just sounds like a very arrogant thing to say. So when I started pitching investors, I was just very um you know, humble or more realistic. So we're trying this. We don't know if it works. We have some customers, and it didn't <laughs> didn't come across well. So I had to adapt to like just being bolder in my communication.
2: So you know, a couple of years ago, shipping for SMBs was probably not you know the blazingly hot space, right? Yeah. That it might be today. Especially also, you know, being a younger founder and new to the valley, this whole story is pretty non-obvious, right? So how did you kind of overcome their concerns and kind of get the initial buy-in from early investors?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think the question about like founder market fit is really non-obvious here. Like I'm not a logistics expert. My co-founder Simon isn't either. We're not even an e-commerce expert really. So when we just started Pitching this idea to investors, like it wasn't something that people were excited about immediately. We pitched roughly 125 investors for a seed round, and uh, we got in the end roughly 10 investors to invest in our in our first series seed. So that was an incredibly challenging process, and we heard so many no's along the way that uh, <laughs> it was just crazy that we didn't give up. I would say. In the end, we were pitching an idea in a space that is very big. E-commerce is a space that's growing and in e-commerce, shipping is one of the most important elements. So We were able to pitch an idea in a market opportunity that is very big and that got investors the confidence that we could be onto something, and then we were able to draw the parallels to businesses like Stripe or Twilio um, that have a similar API-centric go-to-market model. And We used to picture ourselves as Stripe for shipping, like this for that, and that was something that worked very well. So you learned the marketing pretty quickly, it seems. (laughs)
2: How did you initially start putting together the team? How did you meet your co-founder and early execs? Yeah,
0: so I I met my co-founder in grad school, so I was very, very lucky with that. My co-founder, he was actually building his own business with another co-founder before this, but uh, that didn't go anywhere. And then he was the first person I reached out to to uh, start building an e-commerce store that eventually turned into a shipping API. So I got lucky that we're very complimentary. He does all of the things very well and he enjoys doing the things that I can't do and I don't want to do and vice versa. So as an example, he would not enjoy being in this podcast right now. He's just <laughs> not that type of person. Um, and that way we're not stepping on each other's toes. And then the early execs, that was another interesting challenge given that we're, we're foreigners and we don't have a network in this country. We got very lucky with our first engineer who then brought on two of his friends. So when we were small, we were hiring in our, mostly through our own networks and through referrals. And then later on for the execs, we actually did use a lot of exec searching firms and they turned out to be good for us. I would recommend that.
1: So it sounds like you got lucky with some early hires, who yeah. then sort of led you to other people in their networks. Yeah, that can be a double-edged sword, right? If you end up hiring that the wrong person first, who then brings on a number of people who turn out, you know, and that yeah. initial seed is not great, then maybe all the all the uh, branches that come from that might also be a problem. Did you have any as you were hiring that way any mistakes that were made along the way, mm-hmm. and how did you deal with those if there were any?
0: yeah, it's a good question. I think when you're when you're hiring early team members, you're looking for people crazy enough to join your team. Like your earliest team members, they're not going to be, I don't know, some accomplished Facebook Exec or Google Exec unless you already have that network pre-established. But for us, we're just looking for very versatile people who are able to take that risk. And the interesting part here is that our earliest employees were all immigrants as well. We have, a Palestinian, two Palestinians, actually a French guy, a Brazilian. So just like you're right. it's it's not just a double-edged sword that you're bringing someone on who might not be a fit. It's also if you bring in people who are too similar, like you have to look out for diverse hires as well, making sure that you don't have blind spots there. And like at the beginning, we relied mostly on, like, our referrals, but then also me reaching out to specific people who could be a fit. So people who were outside of our networks, but I would uh, write them a LinkedIn message. And I think you'd be surprised, like how many people respond when it's a young founder just very genuine asking for like a coffee meeting. And they might not join the company then and there, but they can maybe think of some other people who would be a fit. And then like we started building our network with that. But even like with earliest investors, like I would just. Find them on LinkedIn, message them, or guess their email addresses. It's really not that hard. It's like first dot last name at domain.com and shoot them a very like sincere and short email with a clear call for action. So most people ask, like, can I pick your brain? We would specifically ask, like, this is what we need from you. Do you have time or not?
1: So it sounds like it was guerrilla marketing mm-hmm. uh, for people at the beginning yeah. to maybe make up for a little bit the fact that you didn't come with a, a network having yeah. grown up here. How much of your time did you end up spending in the early days on building out the team yeah. versus, you know, building and marketing your product and mm. your company?
0: I can't remember 100% anymore, but I would say it's always been like at least 40% on hiring and even now I spend a lot of time on hiring. So I still interview every person before they join the company. I have uh, exec searches going on that occupy a lot of my time and I do think like building out the right team is one of the like most important things a CEO can do.
2: Early on, did you make any uh, mistakes hiring or you know, realize that the culture of the team or whatever you know mm-hmm. benchmarks were set weren't what you wanted and then have to kind of change the team around? Did you go through those experiences early on?
0: Yeah. So when we were very early, we didn't have our, our culture written down and we were just like hiring based on gut feeling. So as we started growing beyond, I think, 25 or 30 people, we did that exercise to everyone like- First, my co-founder and I sitting down writing down what we think, what our culture is. And there it's like the question around what we think, what it is today, like the reality and what we want it to be. So that was the first like hard look at is it actually what we want it to be? And then making sure that we also have the right process in place to uh, screen for these kinds of character traits or people coming in. And then I think the most more important part is like once everyone's in the team, making sure that People are incentivized to act that way. People know uh, what kind of behavior we're expecting, and I I do think like culture is. It sounds like a fluffy word, especially for me just coming here. It sounded really like difficult to grasp. But a concept that I I liked from one of our our investors is like culture is important for decision making when no one's watching over your shoulder, no one like telling you what to do. They use culture as the framework to know what's right and wrong.
1: So have you? Inculcated. How have you inculcated the culture yeah. then amongst your employee base as you yeah. grow? And, and maybe you could remind us oh, how, yes. how many people are in the company now. Yeah,
0: I forgot to mention we're sixty-five people now. It's a pretty big team at sixty-five. I like don't know what everyone is working on day to day anymore. So that's very different from when we were still all sitting at like the big kitchen table working together. And. In terms of how to implement culture, I think there are two ways I think about it. One is top down and one is bottoms up. And we want both to work together jointly. So bottoms up, what we encourage people to do is we give each other praise along like in line of our cultures. And we have a mailing list for that. And we call each other out like customers first is one of our key values. And I see emails coming through like, Lucas has been customer first because I hit him up on a Sunday night at 12 and there was a customer bug and I didn't expect him to jump on it, but he was still awake and he fixed it within five minutes. And then like these are the emails that are coming through in that channel and it's not just me praising people, it's people praising each other. And I I really love reading that and I think everyone else enjoys it as well. And then from my end, like I make sure that I call these things out in our all hands that I I remind people like this is something that happened and for instance we we want to make sure that people are entrepreneurial in our company. So being entrepreneurial is one of our other key values. And another one that I really love is we haven't won yet. So people who join us like they're not joining a cushy job they're like we're pushing like every single day where we set ambitious goals and we want to make sure that everyone here like pushes the company forward. So sometimes these two things in, in combination, what that means is sometimes like, because we're entrepreneurial, we try things and they don't work. And instead of telling people, well, we failed here, like I call them out at all hands and I talk about how, yes, we failed, but this is great because we've been entrepreneurial. And that's what it means to push the company forward. We're going to try things that may sometimes not work out. But what's important is that we've tried them, that we measure them and that we know what to do next
1: and given that you're 65 people and still growing mm-hmm. you know it's no longer just a small team sitting around a table and like you said you you don't know what everybody's doing every mm-hmm. day how do you make sure that the culture kind of lives in each new person do you screen for that when you're interviewing people and and then when somebody joins is there some sort of training that you do or or how, how do they learn the culture
0: yeah First of all, culture needs to start at the top. So we hire a group of execs, our leadership team. We screen very carefully that um, everyone's in line with our culture and that we can trust that our leadership team members are then the evangelists for mm. our culture within their own departments as well. And I am involved in every single interview, and we try to have our interviewers, like every interviewer, have specific questions to probe around one certain characteristic that we're looking for. And it's always the same questions. It's like you can't ask like are you entrepreneurial? Everyone is going to say yes. It's a question that is more open-ended asking people about a story, like where they've acted entrepreneurial or a story where they failed and how did they react? And then we debrief together as a team and we make sure that everyone like all of the four key values that we we're, we're looking for, we've screened for and we have a good story for every one of them to support them.
2: So, as with a lot of companies especially early on, you know, you've probably before you did this whole culture exercise, they probably hired people that ended up not working out. Yeah. How did you kind of come to that realization mm-hmm. and then you know, what did you do thereafter and how did you handle that conversation?
0: Here it's important to realize that when someone does not work out, it doesn't mean that they're a bad marketer or or like a bad engineer. It's sometimes simply not a fit for what you're looking for. Like they could be a phenomenal marketer at another company where the cultures may be different. So start out with, I would say, when you're a very small company, you don't sit down and think about what are your expectations, but once you start growing to more than 20, 25 people, that's something I've started doing and it's been a game changer for me, just being very clear about like what are my expectations for this job and what are my expectations in terms of culture, and then also communicating that to the other person up front. It sounds like an easy thing to do, but it's it's not. When something goes wrong, the first thing I ask myself is, like. Did I communicate my expectations properly? Because I, if I didn't, then it's really not their fault, it's my lack of communication. And for that, I really benefited um, from having an executive coach, so really coaching me through how to have some of these like more difficult conversations, how to have them in a constructive way to not trigger fight or flight, how to frame them in a way that like, always keeping in mind like you're both working towards the same goal you both of us like we want the company to succeed but you're coaching them to do it in a way that meets your expectations
1: regarding executive coach interesting to know that you have one tell us a little bit about the decision to retain somebody was that something your board influenced yeah. or something you decided to do and when did you do it yeah. and what have you you know any any tips for our listeners on what's works with a coach and maybe mm-hmm. what might not work as mm-hmm. well
0: so I got my executive coach roughly 2 years ago, I think right after a Series A. And back then I was really going through like some sort of identity crisis as a CEO, <laughs> as a young CEO and um I'm still a young CEO, but <laughs> Really, I heard from a lot of people, including like team members who left the company in, in their exit interviews. Like, they would tell me, Well, I just thought startup CEOs would be more like Steve Jobs, or like, you're in no way like Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and
2: that's <laughs> it's a little unfair, but all right. It is, it
0: is unfair. And when I heard that first, I was like, yeah, you're right. I need to be more like Steve Jobs. I need to be more like Mark Zuckerberg. So my first thought in getting an executive coach was actually coming from a very like wrong perspective. I thought I'd get a coach to learn how to be more like Mark Zuckerberg. And in <laughs> in my first session with the coach, he set me straight. He was like, you are yourself and we're going to identify what makes you a good leader, what makes what makes me comfortable and uncomfortable, where my strengths and weaknesses are, and how I I can lead with authenticity. And that's helped me so much, That switching out that perspective, not trying to be like someone else, but really understanding, this is what I'm good at, these are my limitations, hiring for my weaknesses, and then just being really unapologetic about, yes, these are my weaknesses, but I'm upfront about them.
1: How often do you meet with your coach, and does your coach help set milestones for you, and kind of... Help you manage the business, or is it more coaches helping you be a better CEO?
0: So the coach for me is more helping me to be a better CEO. Um, It's a mix between like therapy and (laughs) business coaching. So I do get the opportunity to vent to talk about all my problems, and I get that out of the system first, and then we start talking about how to improve, what to do, so to make sure that these kinds of situations don't happen again. Um, and I meet him on a bi-weekly basis. And the other interesting aspect there is like, I go by myself and then I also go together with my co-founder. And (laughs) with my co-founder, it's a lot like couples therapy. And it's making sure that the two of us communicate well with each other, that we're aware of like each other's strengths and weaknesses so we can support each other. Like some things, like no one's born being a good manager. Management is something that you learn and you learn it by making a ton of mistakes. And then, as a CEO, everyone expects you to be like great at everything. So the uh, feedback cycle sometimes can be a little negative because you're never good enough. So with my co-founder, we try to like help each other with a more positive feedback cycle. So I know what he's trying to improve, and when I see him put that effort into it, I call him out on it and tell him he's doing well. I guess on that
2: note of you know having a therapist, right? I think it's become you know more topical to talk about like mindfulness and mental health, yeah. taking care of yourself in, in the valley. And the default is to work until you die, right? Yeah. Um, how have you sort of embraced having a healthier attitude, right, about being a manager and sort of going going long?
0: Yeah. And I'm still alive, so I'm not working myself <laughs> to death. So there, there are a couple of aspects here. And one is like, what my coach told me was, I need to take care of myself because I'm The most important asset for this company. So if I'm not doing well, I can't lead the company in a good, in a good way. So that was an interesting perspective, one that I did not have before. And since then, I've been placing more emphasis on, on working out. And I do get just my best ideas when I'm working out or when I'm just, when I'm doing things that aren't work related. Like I don't come up with cool project or product ideas when I'm like at my desk. So I've like, I've really seen the value of not being at my desk all the time. And I've, People tell me, like, I I don't have time for working out. I don't have time to meet my friends. And I think it's about scheduling time. So I have blocks in my calendar that are blocked off for working out. And no one's able to schedule anything over it. And I make time for working out. I've started meditating earlier this year. I think I'm I'm approaching it in a very like non-religious or non-spiritual way. I think it's important for the brain to have some downtime. And the reality is, if you don't sit still and close your eyes for 10 minutes every day, you're probably going to look at your phone or be distracted some other way. So, like independent from enlightenment, like sitting still for 10 minutes is good for you.
1: So, as if you weren't busy enough, um, <laughs> it seems like you know you've got 10,000 plus customers now at Chipot, mm-hmm. right? So. To assume that there's a lot of smaller and mid market companies in your customer base. Yeah. And historically, in our experience, it's been more difficult. There are more companies that have failed trying to go after the SMB and mm-hmm. mid-market, whereas going after the enterprise is a little bit more tried mm-hmm. and true for a lot of entrepreneurs. What are some of the challenges you've faced going after that smaller customer base with your API-driven business mm-hmm. model? and what have been some pleasant surprises mm-hmm. uh, from that model as well.
0: Yeah. So I think we started out with SMBs because shipping is just a it's such such an important part in e-commerce that a Walmart or a Target would never trust a startup that has no business or no shipping volume going through their their software. So when we started like we did try to talk to larger companies and they all told us, well, Sounds interesting. This is a cool concept, but you have zero volume. Like, why should we trust you? So, we were kind of forced to go after SMBs first. And it was a very rewarding experience because SMBs, they have no idea about shipping. And they're the ones where like shipping eats into their margins. They don't get any shipping discounts. And when they need to like figure shipping out, they can't build their store, build their business, or spend time with their family doing like whatever they want. Meaning that our first customers, they gave us really positive feedback. Like they wrote into us all the time telling us that we're saving them money and it's money they can invest in marketing. We're saving them time. And that was, I think, what got us going at the beginning because my co-founder and I, we were discussing like, is shipping something that we're passionate about? Like, is it something that we want to do for the next 10 years? And it got us passionate because we were seeing that we're making a real impact on, on real people's lives. And, I think that's different from enterprise businesses, where in enterprise businesses, it's it's more of a transactional relationship. I'd say the other interesting aspect here is that we started out really trying to replicate Stripes or Twilio's business model with the developers as our first customer group. And we we did try to go to hackathons um, to acquire customers there, and that was a failure because we learned that, a developer is not going to integrate a shipping API for no reason. Like, you're going to integrate it if you have an e commerce store. You're not going to do it just for fun at a hackathon. So, we weren't able to acquire customers just hanging out at hackathons. Developers remain an important audience, but our first SMB audience, there were like mom and pop store owners who just wanted to save time and money.
2: At every stage of a company, um, there, there are new challenges, right? Mm-hmm. So you've obviously overcome a ton, but with every stage, there's something new. So what is keeping you up at night at this stage?
0: <laughs> I think <laughs> the challenges, they they never ended at every stage, or the further along you are, the challenges, like they become even scarier because uh, you've got more to lose. So, shipping is in this interesting inflection point where it's not just about saving money or optimizing. It's like Amazon has put shipping front and center of every e commerce store's minds because it's a key decision-making factor for online shoppers. Online shoppers look at how long it takes for the package to get there, how much shipping is—is is it free shipping? So it actually it affects conversion rates. So every single e-commerce store out there is trying to meet these new customer expectations, and for that, like it, it the pitch makes sense that a modern startup is going to bring you like a new way to meet customer expectations to deliver shipping that is a customer experience, not just um, like. Something that's that's in the background happening in the warehouses. Uh, so I think we're at this good inflection point. That also means that we're starting to go upstream, and going upstream comes with its different kinds of challenges. So we're we're talking to a different kind of customer group. It's not just a mom and pop store owners anymore. It's mid market. It's larger customers. Starting to build like an enterprise sales team or a business development team. We need to uh, seem bigger than we actually are. We need to like. Come with more polished collateral, so it's just a very a very different set of challenges. And I think on the higher level, um, something that my board members reminded me of today again, where it's it's important to be in the weeds and to figure out how to grow today, but also we need to constantly like take a step back and think about how are we going to like sustain growth a year from now, and what are the investments we need to make today to make sure that next year we're not stagnating because it might take longer. To invest in these products.
1: We were chatting earlier about you doing some like a, a town hall or fireside yeah. chat with, with board members on yeah. occasion to kind of help your employees see that bigger picture as yeah. well. Can you talk a little bit about the value you've seen there?
0: Yeah, so uh, we invite our board members to do fireside chats. We've done two so far, we've got two board members, so we need to figure out who to invite next. But whenever we have our board members in, It's a great energy for our team. Our team every day is in the weeds figuring out engineering challenges, marketing challenges, or working on something very specific. And It's so awesome to be able to take a step back and connect the dots of what they're working on every single day and the big picture, the big vision, how they're able to help us get there. And That's really what our our board members are phenomenal at. They tell that story really well of like, Hey, we've been able to double every single year and we want to keep doubling and then like 3 years from now you could be at that size. Imagine that. It's it's insane. And then being able to paint the picture of or or hearing from an investor that they really think IPO and IPO is something that's a viable option for us, it's just such a rewarding thing to hear not just for me but for everyone in the room.
1: Very cool. So we end every episode with what we call our hot seat questions. <laughs> so uh, these are tough by design. Yeah. <laughs> and um just you know take take 30 seconds or, or a minute yeah. uh, to answer each one. Yeah. Okay, here's the first. What was the worst moment you've had in a board meeting or any meeting? Yeah. And why and how did you deal with it?
0: Okay, so I'll I'll share a story. When we were trying to fundraise for our series A, or rather, like we were starting to get ready for a series A, putting our material together. Sharing the story with uh, some investors we've built relationships with already. In the middle of that, like we're just starting to get excited, they're starting to get some interest. One of our biggest customers churned, and we had to call up the investor who was most interested, telling him, Well, like our numbers now suddenly look very different overnight, and we're sorry, but we didn't anticipate this. And the investor decided not to invest, and we decided not to do a Series A at that time, but we did a, a seed extension. And then with that seed extension, we were able to get that customer back, uh, put a grow a little more, and then go out again to do our Series A. Wow. But that was a very tough conversation to have.
1: Wow, well kudos <laughs> to you for having that conversation and you know, having enough fortitude to, to, to hit pause on the process mm-hmm. and have... Seed investors who had the gumption to continue to stay with you, and uh, it sounds like it's it's worked out really well.
0: Yeah, for that I am forever uh, grateful. The seed investors just stepping in, doing that seed extension, like it's incredible how much they believed in us.
2: This one's easier. What was one of your best hires, and why was this person so great?
0: Oh, that's an easy one because we just made a hire that I'm super excited about. We have a VP finance. Uh, Sunil, who joined our team from Instacart. Mm -hmm. And it is just so great how much financial visibility Mm -hmm. uh, our VP Finance is able to bring in and give me. I feel irresponsible saying that we did not have this financial (laughs) visibility just a month ago. So I'll give you a specific example here, like our most important KPI is revenue growth And he has a very structured way of thinking and breaking down complex problems into just simple drivers. And he broke it down immediately to like revenue growth for our business means labels (sighs) times revenue per label. And then all of our initiatives need to ladder up either to increasing our label volume or increasing revenue per label. And that's these are very simple concepts, and now we can easily like bucket our, our initiatives into one of these two and make sure everyone's aligned and everyone understands why their job is valuable.
1: Fantastic. Okay, last question for you, Laura, today. You're obviously a very thoughtful person. What's the best book or article or piece of content that that you've consumed yeah. that you'd recommend to a founder in your shoes, but let's say a couple of years earlier?
0: Yeah. So last year I read a book called Shoe Mm Doc. I forgot the author. Oh, Phil Phil Knight. Phil Phil Knight, Knight Knight, yes. Yeah, great one. That was my my favorite book. Why'd you like it so much? Okay. So first of all, you look at it's the story of Nike, and you look at Nike as this huge multinational corporation. Everyone's wearing their shoes, including my mom. And He tells the story of they failed or they were at the brink of failure so many times. Like they were almost going bankrupt over and over again. No bank would lend to them. And I think like when you look at these, uh, successful companies, they seem like an overnight success, but I just loved hearing that this was a story of persistence of grid and that it was not obvious to him that they were going to be successful from day one. And then the other thing I I loved is like it's a story about a startup in the pre-internet times. So he had to like communicate with business partners in Japan and writing letters going back and forth. It would take like weeks for the letters to arrive. I can just imagine like how Nervous. He was sitting at home waiting for weeks. When I send an email out, everyone has an email tracker. I look at the tracker, has it been opened? Has it been opened? And he's just sitting at home waiting for like correspondence.
1: <laughs> Laura, that was an awesome interview. We really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for coming in and joining the Founder Real Talk family. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc or at Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at Heavybit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000 from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening.